0: Welcome to the Weekly Udemon. A Catholic guy's perspective on everything that matters. I'm his daughter Meg. I'm his daughter Tess. We listen to every episode. Five times. Alright, we have a pretty varied show today. We have an extended lightning segment. We're going to be talking Buddhist mindfulness, the mind and art of Albert J. Nock, the importance of punctuation, and all sorts of other things. I think you're going to enjoy it. As always, thanks for listening. The Mind and Art of Albert J. Knock Yeah, yeah, 1964 book by Robert Crondon Preliminary note on Robert Crondon He must have been a pretty fascinating dude He wrote this book at age 22, it appears. Published when he was 23 or 24, but wrote it while he was an undergrad at Yale. And it's, it's unbelievable, quite frankly. I mean, there's, there's layers of information. It presumes a lot of knowledge with other thinkers, and it's just remarkable work for a uh, kid as undergrad. Uh, hats off to Yale. Um, also fascinating, Crunton died of a heart attack when he was 49 years old in 1999. Yeah, I, he has quite a few of the books he put out. I can't imagine how great his output would have been. About age forty-nine, you're you're hitting your intellectual stride, as far as I'm concerned. The great um, essayist Joseph Epstein once wrote that you can't be a great essayist till you're at least age forty, because at age forty you uh, you obtain a worldview and that allows you to be a great essayist. I've long maintained that if you're a Catholic, you can actually become a great essayist much earlier, because Catholicism gives you that worldview. At age 52, I'm not sure I'm right about that, but that's always been kind of my, my perspective. Anyway, this this book, um, The Mind and Art of Albert J. Knock, is excellent. It's out of print. You may want to go buy it right now. As of this moment, Amazon has nine left. And they're all reasonably priced too, like, you know, eight bucks a piece. I thought about going out and buying up all of them and then promoting it heavily and sell them at a, at a, at a, at a huge profit, but I opted not to be a dick. The The book, just in general, is great to, to, as an introduction to the, the mind of Albert J. Nock, who is often con- considered the godfather of modern American libertari- libertarianism. So I've, I recommend it for that reason. But the chapter I really liked was the chapter on um, Albert J. Nock's intellectual foundations, or the four thinkers that really, really had an impact on Nock. And they were Matthew Arnold, Herbert Spencer, Franz Oppenheimer, and Henry George. And in that chapter, Crundin goes through and kind of summarizes their thoughts really nicely. Uh, Matthew Arnold, he was a, the culture dude. He was always pushing culture on his English readers. You know, culture is getting to know the best of what has been said and thought. And Matthew Arnold was always preaching that, that people just needed to, to immerse themselves in culture. Herbert Spencer... He's often considered like the godfather of libertarianism in general. He kind of started it in in a a lot of ways. Herbert Spencer's position was, God wills man's happiness, which can only be attained by exercising one's own faculties. Therefore, government shouldn't interfere with those faculties, and should only interfere when necessary to stop one person from interfering with another person's exercise of his faculties. That's kind of like the Night Watchman theory of libertarianism. Then you have Franz Oppenheimer, You've probably never heard of Oppenheimer, although I did mention him on one of the old podcast feeds. Oppenheimer had an interesting theory, which I don't think has been necessarily borne out. But his his old theory is that whenever you have a state, it is necessarily two-tiered. The ruling class and the inferior class, or the ruled class. And it's normally because of conquest. So you have a bunch of peaceful farmers developing their crops, whatever, becoming somewhat wealthy... And then you have marauders come in, see that there's wealth to be had. They swoop in, they take the wealth, and basically subjugate the farmers. That's the gist of Oppenheimer. And he said the state always consists of a ruling class and the ruled. I I think he's probably right about that. The the problem with this theory that this is always the origin of the state is the ruling class, or the the marauding barbarians that rode in and took all the crops and subjugated the farmers. The ruling class must have come from some place that was not itself the product of conquest. So, okay, well, where where did the ruling class come from? You know, you can't keep going backwards and backwards. At some point, they had to have risen up just with the ranks of their own society. So, it kind of breaks down from there. But I, th- I think it is an apt apt uh, observation. Um, you look at like the Hunger Games, for instance. If you, if you want to see a a literary example, look at the Hunger Games kind of unsettling you clearly have a ruling class and the ruled and if you want a even more unsettling picture consider the fact that northern virginia is now the wealthiest area of the united states and besides an aircraft manufacturer they don't do anything there but one thing and that is rule other people the rest of us and then you got henry george henry george i don't understand exactly what his thought was, but it all comes down to the single tax. And I'm just going to quickly summarize my understanding of it. Henry George pointed out that all wealth emanates from land. And therefore all taxation should center just on the land. It appears basically he just, he, he endorsed a huge property tax. He also endorsed that the government should own all the land. And he wasn't a socialist. His idea was government own all the land, and they give long-term leases to people to make it productive. And those leases are the kind of taxes, so to speak, because that lease payment is the only tax that the government collects. It's actually for a limited government for the most part. But you're saying the government's got to make do with that land tax, and all of it should be paid by the landowner. That is how valuable land is. To my knowledge, no one has ever refuted Henry George. I know that was Knox's position. No one's ever refuted Henry George. And I know even economists who disagree with George, they all concede. And I I, I can't swear to this, obviously, but to a man would agree that, yeah, he has a point. Even if we disagree with his conclusions, he does have a point. If you're young and starting out, you ought to take this to mind and think to yourself, hey, maybe I ought to start trying to acquire some land. Buy some land, work it, develop it. My advice if you're in your 20s, go out there and invest and buy some land. Start leasing out, trying to make it productive, do whatever you can. I'll give you another piece of advice uh, to take off on knock. Consider adopting four thinkers. Try to think of four four thinkers who you respect, admire, or you have good reason to, to respect and admire, and then delve into their thought obviously it's a little tricky because if you don't know what they say how do you know whether to adopt them as you th- as, <laughs> as your adopted thinker but consider, you know consider at least pick out two or three that you really respect and delve into the works that being said I've never really done that uh if I had to pick my four thinkers I would say okay GK Cheston and Eric Vogelin no doubt there after that though I'd have to kind of look to a stable um I'd say uh Albert J. Nock, Nassim Taleb, Russell Kirk, Heller Bellock, C.S. Lewis, Thomas Sowell. That'd be kind of a stable of my third and fourth thinkers. I'd I'd put those uh, five into that list. I need to record a little introduction to this next segment. I'm going to be talking about environmental leftism and pro-gay marriage leftism and why they line up. The central point is that the deconstructionist left hates the idea of a central idea and hates the idea that there are any truths out there, any set truths. The deconstructionists, inspired by Jacques Derrida, they oppose it. So keep that in mind by way of introduction to this next segment. Have you ever wondered why the environmental activist tends to be pro gay marriage? I mean, on the surface, there really is no connection between those two. In fact, you can argue it should be the opposite. Gay marriage is sterile, it can't produce children, and therefore the homosexual is not as concerned for future generations as someone who is procreating children and can have grandchildren and great grandchildren, etc., etc. But yet, it's not the opposite. Pro environmental pro-gay marriage tend to walk hand in hand. Why is that? I think there's an explanation and it has to do with the central idea and the idea that there are truths, immutable truths out there just in general. First off, on the environmental side, that is just kind of a lefty thing. Always has been. Uh, Yeah, I mean, Theodore Roosevelt was Republican and he was into conservation, but he was no conservative. Uh, Russell Kirk, one of my heroes, uh, he was concerned about the environment. I myself have concerns about things like factory farming, and I believe we have to be stewards of God's creation. That that does not make me a lefty, um, but just in general, though, you know, it's been more of a leftist type cause, and I can't tell you exactly why. Uh, I I have <laughs> a lot of theories, but but one of them is environmentalism. Ecology, deep ecology, you can Google that phrase. They're religious substitutes. We all have religious experiences. The caricature, the cliched version is seeing a sunset or seeing a sunrise. It's sitting by a babbling brook and everything just feels like it's one, like you're at peace with creation. Everyone has those experiences. If you're religious, you know it's God knocking at your door. If you're not religious, you don't know what the frick it is, and you're a little freaked out by it. But there are ersatz, E-R-S-A-T-Z, explanations for it. You know, ersatz religious explanations for it. The classic one is, well, this is this coming from myself. It's coming from my my inner stores of energy. Okay, it's. I think that's kind of stupid, but but that is definitely one that's been popular, um, a popular way for people to explain that experience. The other one is the deep ecology. It's me becoming one with nature. It's me feeling Mother Nature coming up from the earth. That's also been a atheist response or answer for those religious callings that we all experience. So both of those avoid the need for truth. If these religious experiences are coming from yourself, well, that's just from yourself, from your inner, from your inner ground, perhaps. And if it's all just from the earth, well, that's that's obviously, that's imminent. That's not transcendent. That's imminent. And therefore, it's coming from, you know, therefore there is no God. You don't need God to explain those experiences that you have. And trust me, every person has to grapple with those experiences. And that is probably something you want to put in the back of your mind as you go through life. So you always have that at hand when you're trying to analyze things later, when you're trying to understand other people. We all have those experiences. Some have them more often than others, I suppose, but we all have them. So anyway, so I think because that ecological response, I think that's why the envirom- the environmental movement, has often been pretty lefty, or pretty leftist, and there there are also some Marxist explanations and things like that. But I'm not, I'm not going to go there. Okay, so now shift over to the family. The deconstructionists oppose any central idea, especially oppose the family. And here I want to point out, this is an intuitive thing. In the family, you have a repeated rebuke to the idea that there is no central idea. Anyone in a traditional family has experiences that tattoo themselves on his core. Dad is strong, mama's pretty, siblings are fun. From there other truths emerge, we need each other, joy is found in others. We ought to be thankful. We need to forgive when things when things when wrongs are done to us. The family is a truth making machine, and that's why deconstructionists and the modern leftists hate it. They want to kill it. I'm not even sure in fact. I am sure it's not, (laughs) I'm not even sure it's intentional. In fact, I am sure it is not intentional. It's intuitively the leftist who's informed by deconstructionism hates the family. Again, I'm not saying all leftists hate the family. I'm saying leftists who are informed by deconstructionism intuitively hate the family because they know these little bastards that are coming out of this little truth-making machine are coming out with all these little dogmas in their soul, and they think they're all true. And that's all a bunch of crap, and we need to tear it down to stop these people from coming out poisoned to the to the quip with their little truths that they think are accurate because Mom and Dad told them so or because that's the way it was in their family and we got to kill this off as much as possible. But now conversely, people like me, the traditional people, the conservative uh, the central idea people, <laughs> we intuitively preserve the family and we don't want it to be left with gaping holes into its truth-making properties. This is why the gay marriage debate was so freaking fierce and ought to continue, quite frankly. And I have my own views on gay marriage that, quite frankly, probably don't line up with the conservative, but I'll, I will may address that later. But the left wanted gay marriage because it strikes at the very core of the family. The family is there for one reason. It's because of the biblical injunction. And again, it doesn't need to be the Bible. You can, you can go back to China or Japan. I don't care. Every culture agrees. It's basically a man shall leave his father and mother and become one with his wife and procreate and the family then is institution that is going to be there to raise these children. By interjecting gay marriage, which is by itself sterile and does not produce any children, you've completely slashed against the whole reason for the family. That gay marriage thing leaves a, a gaping hole in traditional marriage. It's a huge wound. And by doing that, the left... The deconstructionists especially have crippled a truth-making machine, and deconstructionists hate truths. Again, keep in mind, they don't believe truths exist, period, and they hate the idea that people think there are truths, and because a family is a truth-making machine, the left deconstructionist type left want to kill it off. Lightning America is none too friendly to people who oppose war. When when war frenzy grips America, things just go nuts. Um, and, and, if, and if you're not pro-war, you're you're really 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 on the outs. It's it's really a fascinating history of not just pacifists, as people who oppose war for one reason or another. And quite frankly, I even saw it in my own personal life. I remember uh, back when we went to war in 1990 with Desert Desert Storm one of my favorite professors, Charles Rice at Notre Dame, who was an ex-Marine, uh, very conservative, you know, Republican, etc etc et cetera. He's like, I, I can't figure out what we're doing over there. I had no idea. We need to get out. And I was I was, I was almost scandalized, you know, because I, I was so much caught up in the war fever. And I realized, looking back now, that this has happened repeatedly throughout United States history. Anyway, <laughs> what brought that up is Reading that book by Albert J. Nock, about Albert J. Nock by Crunden, he points out that Nock's disciple Frank Chodorov, who was Jewish, was against U.S. involvement in World War II, and he was attacked as an anti-Semitic Jew. So, when America's in a war frenzy, it knows no bounds. Do kids still play King of the Hill? I was sitting at an important meeting earlier this week, and one of the people at the meeting referenced kids at the local elementary school going off and playing King of the Hill. (laughs) I was kind of laughing. I just didn't think that was a thing anymore and I I seriously doubt it's it's permitted. But man, I I loved King of the Hill when I was a kid. Definitely Definitely a boys game to play. I still like to play. In fact, it's even more fun now. I really dominate all the first graders and kindergartners. But reference to King of the Hill, I'm at this medium where I have to keep a straight face. And then for some reason all I could think about was the uh, similar game called uh, Smear the Queer. <laughs> I don't know if that was just a, a thing in my town, but <laughs> one kid is it and he's the queer and he starts running. You catch up to the kid and you just pound him. You don't actually hit him with your fist, but you tackle him and and pile on top of him and someone else has declared the queer and he gets up and runs away until you catch him and (laughs) smear the queer. That was was a great childhood game. Uh, This week's podcast recommendation, Catholic stuff you should know. This is such an obvious recommendation, I feel even funny saying it. I don't think I've given them a... I don't think I've endorsed them yet on this podcast. I have on my blog, but on my podcast, so it clearly deserves an endorsement. The podcast itself is wildly popular with, with younger Catholics. I like it, quite frankly, because it has four priests on it. They're all friends, and they hang out. They tell you what they're drinking, usually Maker's Mark at the beginning of the show, if, if they are drinking sometimes or not. And... You see through their banter that they call it that these are all just uh, ordinary dudes who are, happen to be priests and have a call to the priesthood, but they still enjoy the same thing that other the same things that other men enjoy, and they're clearly manly men. They're not they're not uh, in any way, shape, or form a feminine or homosexual or anything like that. They're just cool as hell, quite frankly, and you can tell that from talking to them. Uh, last week, my kids actually met two of the two of the priests. Actually, I think they met three of them, and they basically confirmed, yeah, even in even in person or real life, these guys are as cool as they sound on the podcast. So, if you want to kind of kind of a look at a Catholic priest's life with some Catholic theology thrown in, take a hard look at it. It's a lot of fun. A couple of quick notes from the blog. I make a reference to the fact that the mini bar is apparently dying. The hotel mini bar. The hotels are saying they can't make money off their mini bars anymore. That they keep in the hotel room, so they're they're not offering it anymore. Well, as the article points out for current lodging, you know, twelve bucks for a Heineken. It's no wonder. And I know nothing about the economics of hotel mini bars, but you think if you could charge a reasonable amount of money for these drinks, people would have them. I've only Got one thing in a mini bar, I think, in the past ten years, and I woke up with a hangover one morning, and I was just dying for a Red Bull. And so I was at the uh, the Win out in Las Vegas, and I went ahead and paid the. It was like seven bucks, so it wasn't actually as bad as I would have thought being at the Win in Las Vegas. But I got I got the Red Bull because I just I had to have it to be functional that day. I missed it over the holidays, but I guess. Tennis great and great lesbian Martina Navratilova came out against the trans community, saying that men should not be allowed to compete in women's tennis. Something along the lines of, if you have a penis, you should be playing men- women's tennis, and that got her a huge backlash. <laughs> so it's kind of like that that Frank Chodder of piece, you know, call her, call him an anti-Semitic Jew. Like you're an anti-trans lesbian. It's very strange. Well the holidays tipped me up to the heaviest I've ever been in my life weight wise. I've since dropped eight pounds. About almost about four percent of my weight. I was up almost two hundred pounds. I figured out the secret to dieting, you just don't eat. Apparently the canonization cause of a dude up in the upper peninsula has been opened up. That's that's just kinda of bizarre, you know, to have a to have an actual saint from Michigan. <laughs> that much more strange, being from the Upper Peninsula. It's it's kind of a different country up there. It's diff- different people. It's getting more, um, I'm not sure, homogenized with the rest of Michigan, I guess. But they have a different dialect. Um, they often look at themselves as more as part of Wisconsin than of Michigan. And they got this Uper up there now, going to possibly become a saint. Interesting story. It looked like he had the stigmata, you know, the wounds of Christ. interesting stuff. I'm I'm pulling for him. I want to throw out a plea for good grammar, and I'm not talking in everyday conversation, face-to-face, verbal. I'm talking like on social media, Facebook, Twitter. I get—I don't want to say so frustrated because I don't really give it much thought, but it's very frustrating when you go onto Facebook and like your kids show, hey, you got you got to check out this post, and then you read like a response to that post, and it's someone writing just one great big. Run on sentence. I see younger people, not kids, 10 like year olds who don't know better. I'm talking people in college. They just do one great big, it's not even a run on sentence. It's, it's like four sentences all put together, no periods between, no commas. And it takes you like five times longer to read it because you're just trying to figure out what they mean. And you realize, Oh, that's actually a well crafted length, uh, um, set of sentences. But she just didn't use any commas or periods. And I say she because of what I'm thinking about that I saw last week. It was just like, what the heck? But then you realize, oh, if you put a period and then capitalize the first letter of the next sentence, these are three sentences that all were fine, constructed the way they were. You just chose not to use a period or capital letter. And you have to ask yourself, why would someone do that? Probably not ignorance. Well, I, I'll just come up with one thing. It's just, it's just inconsiderateness. The person doesn't care that's going to take you three or four times longer to read her passage because she didn't use proper punctuation. She'd probably respond, well, I don't care if you read what I wrote. Well, well that's fine. That's fine as well. But <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is that punctuation is a sign of caring about the other person it's a small thing. In fact it might be the smallest thing I can possibly think of when it comes to taking a small thing and showing consideration towards another person in this life. But if you're gonna post something on social media, it's obviously with the intent that someone's gonna read it. If someone's gonna read it, try to make it as accessible as possible. Yeah, you know, I, I have I have this sin and when I type something I I tend to go on too long. I'll send a note to a coworker or something else I expect them to take all this time to read what I wrote, you know, because I'm such a, a, a mighty writer. Well, that that's rude too. It's like you really need to come up and try to make something as pithy as possible in your emails or even everyday conversation, whatever it is, just out of consideration for the other person. So just, just, just try to cultivate that in, in life. And you just start with your social media comments and just think, okay, am I making this as efficient for the other person? I wouldn't obsess about it. I wouldn't worry about it. I would just just one of the small things in the back of your mind. Just try to do it right. Try to do it with uh, love, so to speak, for the other person. All right, let's talk a little mindfulness. That seems to be all the rage these days. <laughs> I'm guessing sooner or later we're going to see infomercials late at night talking about how, how to develop mindfulness. On the secular level, and I, th- I think this is a good thing, by the way, uh, mindfulness, whether it's Buddhist tainted, like much of it is, or a strictly secular version, or the Christian version that we often call recollection, it's, it's all a good thing, no matter no matter what strain it takes. So it ought to be, ought to be encouraged no matter what. On a secular level, mindfulness comes down to one thing. It means breaking your mind in two and having one side watch the other. <laughs> now, of course, you, you can't do that any more than you can have your navel poke itself. Or you have your right hand slap the right hand. And you have to ask yourself the question. Is like It's like, okay, well, if that's what mindfulness is, what's happening? When you say break your mind in two and have one side watch the other, what does that really mean? Well, it means one of two things. One, it means you have a mind that is alternating between two functions. So at one uh, moment you're doing this, but then it shifts over and does this. You know, one moment it's entertaining this thought, and then at the next split second, the mind comes in and stops that thought. This would be kind of similar to what we see in multitasking. True multitasking really doesn't exist in the sense that your mind's doing the same thing are doing, doing two different things at the same level. Your mind consists of four levels when it comes to attention. And if you're doing an activity like trying to read and talk on the phone, that's on the same level. You can't do it. All you're really doing is reading and talking on the phone. And your mind's flipping back and forth with great rapidity. And it's probably bad for you. Uh, that, that's a different topic for a different day. But here, though, when it comes to mindfulness, either your mind is split in two, watching each other, or the mind itself is alternating between two different functions. Another explanation is there's a different faculty in your mind overriding the mind. So with this idea, it would be your soul overriding your brain. You don't have to use those terms. You can say, well, it's your spirit overriding your mind or, or whatever. But the idea is, well, you can't break the mind in two anymore than you can break your navel in two or you can break your liver in two and, you know, have the two work together. Therefore, the mind must have two parts to it of which we typically call or the Christian tradition, we call it the soul. Now, I actually think it's probably the more secular explanation, the mind doing two different things. And here's why I say it. If you want to try a very simple and, and healthy practice with secular mindfulness, merely do this. Identify the emotion when it rises up in you. Whether it's a good emotion or bad emotion, just identify it. As soon as you identify it, it kind of stops. This kind of goes back to the old, one of my favorite reference points in life is you know the C.S. Lewis distinction between enjoying and knowing you're enjoying. As soon as you know you're enjoying, the enjoyment stops. Now you're just looking at the knowing that you're enjoying. When it comes to mindfulness or identifying the emotion you know say you are getting angry but then you sit back and you identify hey i'm getting angry the anger stops or it really really is basically taken out at the knees and really slow down that's what leads me to believe at the psycho level it's really more the mind alternating between itself because merely identifying the emotion kills it because i don't think the mind can do two things at the same time yeah i don't know i'm I'm certainly no expert on spiritual matters or neurological ones, so it, yeah, maybe maybe it is. Maybe it is actually a good argument for the soul that the soul kind of kind of comes and overrides the brain's functions. If you want a, a great, if you want to consider a um, a very good Christian pursuit of mindfulness, check out that book I I promote heavily uh, by Robin Daniels, The Virgin Mind. Uh, go to chapter four. It's called mindfulness. Uh, chapter four is I call it the Zen chapter the Zen chapter for Christians, and then chapter 5 is kind of the the Tao chapter for Christians. Those two chapters, I think, are probably the best in the book. I'm not sure about that. Almost all the chapters are really, really good. Maybe the first chapter is a little slow, and the last chapter is a little slow, but pretty much everything in the middle is just great. Alright, that's a wrap. Hey, I'm looking forward to a good 2019. I'm coming up with different podcasts and techniques and ideas. Hang in there with me. I think you're going to like um, the, the evolving content in these next couple of months. If you have not done so already, please go to Facebook and hit the like or follow button. To be honest with you, I'm not sure why it matters to me, but, but it does. So if you could do that, I really appreciate it. We also have a good Twitter feed that's fairly active. And I'm not going to overwhelm your Twitter inbox with, with notices. I only post maybe half a dozen times a week. As always, thanks for listening.